Hey everyone, Sean here from Strange Matters. I wanted to take a moment to welcome back all of our listeners to the podcast. I know it's been a long wait. Before we get into the episode, I did want to take just a few minutes to give everyone an update on the show. First off, I do want to apologize for the long break in the podcast. It did end up being far longer than originally expected. Both Eric and I had a lot going on in our lives that made it difficult keeping up with Strange Matters on a regular schedule, so we originally planned to just take a few months off for the winter before coming back. However, as things tend to go in life, that plan didn't quite work out as we continue to have different situations that were coming up that forced us to keep pushing back the return of the podcast. Now, Eric still has some commitments over the summer, so I'll be holding down the fort here for a few months, though I will be getting some help from time to time. So with that update, I'm excited on behalf of Strange Matters of bringing the show back and returning to bring some new content to all of our listeners around the world. Also, a quick message to our Patreon supporters. As always, I want to give a big thanks to everyone out there who has donated to us in the past and to those who will do so in the future. It definitely means a lot to us to be able to keep the show going just from the generous donations from our patrons. And I'm sure all of our listeners are thankful as well to our Patreon supporters who allow us to continually keep Strange Matters at free. One new big thing I wanted to mention to our supporters on Patreon is that we will be uploading both our standard and exclusive episodes on our page. And to go along with this, we'll be sending all of our patrons their very own RSS feed. Patrons can then just copy and paste this feed into iTunes or whatever podcast service they prefer. And with this feed, patrons will now be able to listen to every episode of Strange Matters, both standard and exclusive, all in one place, instead of having to switch between the regular feed and our Patreon site. And one final note to our patrons, the regularly scheduled payments will start back up at the beginning of the next month, July. So with all that said, it's time to start the episode. Welcome back to Strange Matters, and enjoy the show, everyone. And welcome back to the Strange Matters podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is bizarre, mysterious, and unexplained. I am Sean, host of Strange Matters, and today I'm joined by... Who are you again? I don't know. Who am I? You're you're some stranger. (laughs) Yes, uh, I am returning. My name is Ethan. Some of our longtime listeners will remember Ethan from our first year of the show. Way, way back. back. So Eric is going to be a little busy over the summer, so Ethan's going to be filling in some. and uh, A little supporting role. Yeah, there we go. All right, well, everyone, welcome back to Strange Matters. And in this new episode, we got a pretty interesting story for everybody. So we're going to be discussing the bizarre and unexplained disappearance of five men from Yuba City, California. On a cold winter night in 1978, a group of five, known by their families as The Boys, left a basketball game, and presumably traveled back home. Instead of just driving back home, however, they inexplicably drove into the mountains and would seemingly vanish into the snowy wilderness of the Sierra Nevada. When the five friends never showed up back at home, their concerned families alerted the police, 
and would start an investigation that would seemingly provide more questions than answers. In this case, reminiscent of the eerie Dyatlov Pass incident, the mystery of the missing Yuba City 5 has remained one of the strangest group vanishings in modern history. In this episode, we will be giving the backstory leading up to the five men's disappearance, the details of the investigation that attempted to make any sense of the situation, and any possible theories or explanations out there that could possibly provide some answers to this mystery. So to start with a little background, this case begins in February of 1978 in Yuba City, California. This strange mystery surrounds a close-knit group of friends, five men whose ages range from 24 to 32, who were nicknamed by their families as The Boys. One thing to note about these five men is that all of them exhibited some type of mental illness or disability. Now, this group included Gary Mathias, an army veteran who was diagnosed with schizophrenia. While occasionally suffering from psychotic episodes and a few violent encounters, after seeking treatment and taking medication, Gary was seen as a sterling success of the program and had not had any issues for several years leading up to this mystery. Another member of this group was Jack Madruga, a fellow Army veteran who, though never officially diagnosed with any medical condition, was just generally described by his family and friends as being a little slow. The other three friends, Bill Sterling, Jack Hewitt, and Ted Weiher, had all been diagnosed at the time with mild mental retardation for various reasons. The other group of five all had their own mental handicaps. They were all quite physically fit and were reported to be able to function very well with their conditions, except if placed in a stressful situation where their behavior could have a tendency to deteriorate, according to their loved ones. The five men all had full-time jobs at some point, though a few were out of work at the time of the disappearance. Gary Mathias worked at his stepfather's gardening business. Jack Madruga had recently worked as a busboy. Ted Wire had worked as a janitor and a snack bar clerk and would often look after his best friend Jack Hewitt, who was described as a loving shadow to Ted. Finally, Bill Sterling was a deeply religious man and would spend time reading religious books to patients in mental hospitals. Right, so every, these five guys, they have some kind of mental challenge issues which we'll play, we'll get into this later on in the story, but for the most part, you know, they were able to function society, they could take care of themselves. Yeah, but as you mentioned earlier, um, when it comes to stressful situations where they deteriorate, I think we can all relate to that. We all get a little flustered and things go downhill sometimes. Right. So, I mean, that's to no surprise. Maybe they are a little faster deteriorating than... Yeah, a little more extreme. Yeah. So, yeah, that'll definitely play a part uh, once we get to the the meat of the story later on. So the boys, as they were affectionately called by their families, mostly enjoyed playing sports together, and they had made up a team, a basketball team, called the Gateway Gators. So the group of friends were gearing up to take place in a basketball tournament, which was sponsored by the Special Olympics, that was taking place on an upcoming Saturday, February 25th, 1978. The night before the basketball tournament... The friends decided to go out and watch a basketball game at Chico State so that they could cheer on the visiting team, UC Davis. Before they left, everything seemed pretty normal in their respective households. Ted Weeher's grandmother told him to wear a jacket since it was cold out, but Ted assured her that he would not need one since he wouldn't be outside much that night. Kara Mathias had been talking nonstop about their upcoming weekend game to his mother in the days leading up to that Friday, 
repeatedly asking her to make sure that he woke up early enough so he wouldn't be late. Several of the others had even laid out their basketball uniform so that they would be ready the next morning before they left to go out that night. On that Friday evening, when Jack Madruga drove around to pick up all his friends to go watch the game, it would seem like nothing was out of the ordinary for the group, and no one at home could have guessed it would be the last time that they would ever be seen. So on the night of February 24th, 1978, the group of five friends watched their team UC Davis win against Chico State before heading out from the arena. The group were driving in Jack Madruga's turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego. When the game ended at around 10 p.m., the group drove and stopped three blocks away at Bears Market, mildly annoying the clerk who was trying to close up when the boys showed up. Who closes at 10 p.m., though? I don't know. I guess people <laughs> in Chico State. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you think that'd be a prime time for people getting out of a basketball yeah. game. Make your bank right there. Yeah. The guys ended up buying one Hostess cherry pie, one Langendorf lemon pie, a Snickers bar, a Marathon bar, two Pepsis, and a quart and a half of milk. Early in the morning of the next day, Ted Weir's mother woke up to an empty house. Worried, she quickly called the Sterling household to see if Bill had come home. Juanita Sterling confessed that she had a similar feeling of dread as she had been up since 2 a.m. waiting on her son who had not come home either. Next, Mrs. Weher called the Madruga, Hewitt, and then finally the Matthias households. All five families had not seen their sons return from the trip previous night. After the families had all confirmed with each other that there was no sign of the boys, they called the police and the investigation quickly began. Both law enforcement and the families attempted to come up with any leads as to the whereabouts of the five missing men, including tracing their last known locations and going around to their usual hangouts. After several days, however, there was still no sign at all of what happened to the group of friends. A fortunate break in the case happened on Tuesday, February 27th, four days after the basketball game where the group was last seen. A forest ranger who was looking into the case told the police he remembered seeing an abandoned 69 Mercury Montego along a mountainous road several days earlier. At the time, he hadn't thought it was noteworthy as a number of people left their cars along the side of the road to venture and hike into the forest, but once he read about the missing men, the make of the missing car stood out to him. Sure enough, when police went to check on this car, they found out it was in fact the Montego that belonged to Jack Madruga. As it would turn out, this discovery of the car would lead only to more questions than answers. The car was found in the Plumas National Forest, which is completely in the wrong direction of where the boys should have been driving from Chico back to Yuba City. At the time, no one could come up with any answers as to why the group had driven off to this remote location after leaving from the basketball game. None of the five men had shown any interest in hiking or camping, and in fact, several of them actively disliked the cold and high elevation of the mountains. It's a little shameful for a couple of them being military boys. They yeah, didn't, they didn't enjoy they didn't, the old outdoor scene. They didn't like that. <laughs> Perhaps the biggest question was why the car was there in the first place. It seemed odd for the group to just leave the car behind abandoned. The car itself was checked out and found to be in fine working condition and had enough gas to make the trip back. And though it appeared that the car had gotten stuck in almost a foot of snow where it was parked, as there were signs of the tire spinning in place, the investigators found out that the car could have easily been pushed free by one or two men, let alone five. 
The only other things that could be noted about the car is that the candy wrappers that the group had bought the night of their disappearance were inside, but that the keys were missing. So beyond that, there were really no clues at all as to where the men went, why they left, and under what circumstances led to them abandoning the car. Jack's mother, Melba Madruga, insisted that her son would not have driven up the isolated road late at night and just leave behind his treasured car. She said, I'm sure he would have come home directly from the game. There is no way he would have gone voluntarily into the mountains at night. In the week following the men's disappearance, teams of deputies from Yuba and joining Butte counties began searching the mountains on foot on horseback and four-wheel drive vehicles with tracking dogs and even a helicopter, but all was to no avail. Though there was virtually no information to go on, it was believed that if the men got lost or confused in their direction and wandered off into the forest with little supplies, there was not much hope for their survival. Yuba County Sheriff Jim Grant said, I was up there myself one day, and the only way I could get out was with a compass. It's very heavily forested country, rough and mountainous and rocky. When law enforcement officers were asked about possible answers to the five men's fate, Sheriff Grant said, We hate to guess what had happened to them. They could have stopped to aid somebody, and the people they aided took advantage of them. His subordinate undersheriff, Jack Beecham, noted that a study of the personality profiles of the missing men shows their disappearance to be totally out of character. Beecham also said a multiple murder, as dark as it sounded, could be a possible explanation. A week after the search began, Beecham commented and said, In fact, as time goes on, it looks more and more like foul play. To sum up the situation in this strange case, Jack Beecham said, We don't know what happened to them. We've got a real mystery on our hands. The prevalent theory is it could be anything. Yeah, so they really got nothing to go on. All they know is they got a car. They got a car. They That's... got some. They got some good candy wrappers up yeah, in there. Some candy so they know. They know they ate the candy. Yes, they ate the candy before. They, well, somebody ate the candy. That's true. As time went on, the families began to worry more about the fates of their sons. Gary Mathias's stepfather said about him, "Gary must take medication twice a day for schizophrenia." If he had no medicine for two weeks, he would be in a very poor condition, talking to himself and the like. He also said that the five men had taken no extra clothing with them and had very little money to be on their own for this long. So if there's one thing, it seems that unless they were able to hide something, that this was not a planned trip. Right. No, all signs point to it was just going to be a night out with the boys. Mm Mm-hmm watch a basketball game, come back, and they're going to do their thing the next day yeah. and play in the tournament. I mean, that, that's all the signs point to. They're, they're not going on some adventure besides that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what it all shows. Yeah. Things aren't adding up. So though this case was puzzling enough, it would only get stranger once the police were made aware of a few potential witnesses of that night. So the same night that the five men went missing, a man named Joseph Scons had become stuck in the snow while driving the mountain road to check on his cabin. As with Jack Madruga's Montego, Joseph's own car got stuck in a bank of snow. While getting out to try to push the car free, Joseph suddenly started to feel something wrong. He collapsed into his car, and unbeknownst to him, he was starting to suffer the effects of a heart attack caused by the physical exertion of pushing his car free. As he started to catch his breath and was waiting till the paint subsided, Joseph saw two sets of headlights come up behind him. One belonged to a Mercury Montego, 
and the other to a pickup truck. The vehicles came to a stop a short distance behind his own car. From his mirror, he could see several people get out of the car, which looked to be a few men and a woman with a baby. He slowly opened his door and leaned out and tried shouting for help. However, instead of helping, the people in the car simply backed out and left him. Eventually, the next morning, after sitting in his car all night attempting to stay warm, Joseph's pain was bearable enough where he was able to walk the eight miles down the mountain to a lodge where he could get a ride to the hospital. That, that's some hardcore parkour right there. Yeah. You're, you're suffering a heart attack. I'm going to walk eight miles and get aid here after making it through the whole night. Yeah, just sitting <laughs> in the car, just like wondering if you're going to make it or not. Yeah. Yeah, that's he's a tough guy. So we'll get into Joseph's story a little more later on. There are a few conflicting versions of the story. Um, obviously, he was not in his right mind right, with what was right. going on. So, But regardless, this is the first time we're hearing that the boys, even if, if it were those boys, there's other people around. Right. It's not just them. Right. Or so it's seen. Yeah. Again, it's, it's, it's all up in the air. So, later on, when given his statement, Joseph Scons admitted that he was not 100% about seeing the pickup truck. He said about this part, I was half conscious, not lucid, hallucinating, and in deep pain. Whether I half saw or half imagined the second vehicle, I just don't know. But I am certain I saw a Mercury. <laughs> so, he, he's not in the right state of mind, but he is for sure certain that he saw this Montego. It's like, without a doubt, that's, that's the car. So, I mean, one thing I'm wondering is, did he actually see the Montego, or did he hear the story about the Montego up in the mountain? And then kind of pieced his own story together. Exactly. Whether or not it's the Montego or not, he just, it kind of worked into his story, and right. that's what he started believing. Because, you know, you tell a story enough, you're going to believe it yourself, even if it's not the right story. Right. And the way I'm seeing it, like, you know, this is at night, the cars are coming up behind him with the headlights on. So I don't think he could get the best view looking back right. at you're, them. You're a little blinded, and he's suffering, or supposedly suffering from it. Either way, Seven, yeah. yeah, he's got something going on, and he's not in the right state of mind. He's more focused on the pain than he is. Exactly. What, what's the make and model of this car pulling up here? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's weird like you would remember that clearly, but then you're also, eh, on if <laughs> that truck was real. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know if the truck was there. Yeah. But I remember that. But there was a Mercury. Yeah. So we'll go. We'll get into more of this later. But you know, take Joseph's story with a grain of salt. So when the families were told about this scenario, they stated that it was not like their boys to leave someone in need of help. Ted Weyer and Bill Sterling had once come across a person who was overdosing on Valium, and they took it upon themselves to pick them up and rush them to the hospital. And Ted's mother said that her son would never leave someone who was calling out for help. In any case, the police at least had one witness who had possibly seen Jack Madruga's Mercury up the mountain on the night of their disappearance. So who was in the pickup truck, if it even existed in the first place, exactly. was yet one more mystery. However, there was another possible witness, one who could corroborate the questionable part of Joseph Scown's account. A woman who wished to remain anonymous saw the poster for the five missing men. She went to the police that day and said that on the afternoon of Saturday 25th, which was the day after the boys were last seen, she had seen a red pickup truck pull into Mary's County Store in Brownsville, which is a town over an hour away from where the abandoned car would be found later on. A 
According to this witness, the woman saw a total of five men in the truck, two of whom went into a payphone, two who stayed in the truck, and the fifth went into the store. She said the five men stood out, as she told the police, I noticed them because they didn't look from this area, and you notice strangers around here, especially them with their big eyes and facial expressions. So yeah, so... <laughs> they got them big eyes. <laughs> I know, the last part, I'm not exactly sure what she means. I think perhaps she was able to imply from their expressions that... They seemed out of place just in general. Like... I don't know. Or or the, their mental challenges or something. Uh, yeah, that could be it. Um, but even then, like, like they're only somewhat slow. Or in Gary's case, he might be going a little further downhill because he hasn't been on his meds in a couple right. days. But I don't... Yeah. I, I don't... That's, that's uh, an expression local to that area. Them big eyes and their facial expressions. Apparently big eyes mean strangers or something. (laughs) I don't know. In any case, Carol Waltz, who was the owner of the store, was also questioned by the police about this day and the group of men. Carol said that he did remember seeing a few men on February 25th and then the following day, Sunday, who he was not familiar with in the area. And after looking at pictures of the missing men, Carol told the police, I'm pretty sure I saw Wayher and Hewitt in the store buying burritos, chocolate milk, and soft drinks. So Dallas Weyer, who was Ted's brother, stated that this sounded like it could be his brother. Dallas said Ted would eat anything he could get his hands on and enjoy chocolate milk. And also, this is not the first mentioning of them buying milk. Exactly, yeah. So they bought milk at the, uh, the Bears, store, yeah. Bears Market, right. So it it kind of molds together there. Yeah. It, it could still be them. Yeah. I'm sure you don't get too many men in their 20s and 30s who are yeah, buying Yeah, or just going milk. to the store to buy some milk. Yeah. So, yeah, that's another connection. So Dallas also said Jack Hewitt was Ted's best friend, and the pair were nearly inseparable. So it would make sense that the two of them were together going into the store. About the witnesses' accounts, Dallas said, The store thing sounds logical, but everything else about the Brownsville story is completely out of character. However, there could be some mix-up with the identities, as the store owner stated that Ted Ware and Jack Hewitt were the ones in the store. The anonymous woman instead claims that she could clearly identify the man in the phone booth as Jack Hewitt. However, Jack's brother refutes this part of the story, saying Jack hated using a telephone and instead would get his reliable buddy, Ted Ware, to make calls for him. Though it could be that the second man by the phone booth could very well be Ted Ware, It would mean that one of the two witnesses would have to be wrong, since the store owner says Ted and Jack were in the store, while the woman's account would suggest they were the ones outside the store. In any case, the fact that there were five men at the store the day after the disappearance, several of which were identified one way or another as some of the missing men, does bring some validity to the claim that these were in fact the missing Yuba City men. Even with these potential witnesses, however, weeks and months began to pass with still no signs of the missing men. Right. So you had this second story of not only a pickup truck, which again yeah, might yeah. suggest yeah, a that... Yeah, second mentioning of a pickup truck. Yes. And five men. Yes. So that's another coincidence. Um, you know, you do have both witnesses claiming that they're seeing Jack and Ted. The woman who's outside the store says she sees Jack and Ted at the payphone. The store owner inside says that's Jack and Ted yeah. inside. But it's the same kind of thing, though. Someone's going to show you a picture. Mm-hmm. You're not really looking at these people in depth, so your mind might be starting to tick and kind of put them in the place of where you saw these people. Right. Where these 
they aren't exactly who you think they are, but They're you see enough. a picture, you're going to like, oh, yeah, those could be them. Right. And this is weeks later, too. Right. So, you know. Your, your mind isn't all, like, ref- it's not as fresh as it was when it happened. Yeah. So, I mean, anything can happen then. Your faces blend together all the time. Exactly. So, this is, you know, a possibility. It is another thread that it could say that these men were actual boys and you got the pickup truck connection. But again, it's all reliant on witnesses testimonies and they're not really crystal clear. Right. Um, so again, it's not a whole lot to go. No, on to. It's, it's nothing that holds much water. Yeah. However, there would be a discovery eventually that would hopefully bring some closure to the case. So, on June 4th, a group of bikers decided to go right up the mountain on their motorcycles since the warm weather had melted much of the snow from the roads. So the group of motorcyclists drove up to a Forest Service trailer to make camp, but upon their arrival, they noticed something was off. After parking out front, they could see that a window had been smashed in. Several ventured up the trailer to find the door unlocked, and when they opened the door, they were greeted with the foul stench of bodily decay. Inside the trailer was the body of a man laying on the bed wrapped up in sheets. The police were immediately notified and arriving on scene to begin their investigation. And sure enough, the body inside the cabin was identified as Ted Weir, one of the missing five. The next day search operations began yet again, this time centered around the trailer where Ted's body was found. Found in the underbrush on the other side of the road, a short distance from the trailer, the remains of Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling were found. Madruga's body had been practically picked clean by scavengers, and his bones had been spread across a small area. Autopsy reports concluded that both men had died from hypothermia caused by exposure to the freezing elements. It was thought that one of the men had collapsed and given into sleep the final stage of hypothermia, while the other tried to carry the man or wake him up before he, too, succumbed to the cold. In what would become one of the darkest parts of the story, several days later, Jack Hewitt's father drove up to the mountains to help with the search efforts to find his son and the last missing man, Gary Mathias. While trekking through the forest, Hewitt would trip over something on the ground. Turning, he would find that the object was a human spine. After clearing the brush away, he would find jeans and a pair of shoes, both of which he knew belonged to his son, Jack. Several hundred feet down the hill, a skull would be found that would match dental records, confirming, in fact, that these remains were confirmed to be that of Jack Hewitt. Just as with his friends, he too had died from hypothermia. Now, all that was left was for Gary Mathias. For weeks afterwards, police and volunteers searched the area, but no sign of the last missing member of the Yuba City group could be found. The only possible clues found was a flashlight and a few Forest Service blankets that were located a quarter mile from the trailer. However, whether these had been taken by Gary could not be known for sure. So while the police were finally able to determine the fate of four of the men, There were still many questions about this case that just remained a mystery. What exactly the five men were doing up the mountain, whether they had access to this pickup truck seen by several witnesses, and why they never attempted to really make it down the mountain were just a few open-ended questions that the investigators were left with. In an attempt to make sense of the situation, a thorough investigation of the trailer was conducted. Now, the scene inside the trailer made about as much sense as any other part of this mystery. 
Ted Weyer's body was found wrapped in eight different sheets, completely encasing his whole body and head. Made even more unusual was the fact that it was believed that Ted was still alive when he was wrapped in these sheets. His autopsy revealed that his death was caused by a combination of starvation and hypothermia, none of which made sense taking into account his surroundings in a trailer. Ted had lost nearly 100 pounds, half his body weight, when he was found, suggesting that he had been starving for a very long time. The growth of his beard suggested that he had lived around three months from the date of the group's disappearance, which would mean that he had actually died just two weeks before his eventual discovery. One last notable piece of information was that Ted's body was in a very bad state. He was incredibly weak and was suffering from severe frostbite. And this made the lead investigators believe that he could not have wrapped himself in the bedsheets himself, that instead someone else would have had it done it for him. So which of the other five men had still been alive at this point was unknown. Ted's personal belongings were found on the bedside table, along with a gold watch whose owner was unknown. The entire situation of Ted's body in the trailer completely puzzled investigators. No one could make sense of why the men had discovered the trailer, only to nearly completely ignore its shelter and resources. The investigators determined that no fire had ever been started in the fireplace, despite ample firewood found outside and a large amount of matches found inside. Even if none of the men really knew how to get a fire going, there was also plenty of paperback novels and other burnable materials found inside the cabin that could be used to help start a fire. You would think that Gary at least would know how to start a fire, given his army training. Yeah, and uh, I forget which one you mentioned. Way Jack early. Madruga, I think, was also, also military. Exactly. It was also found that about a dozen sea rations had been opened up and left in the trailer, which had been taken from a supply shed just outside. However, this was just a small drop in the amount of food available, as inside that same shed, there was enough rations to keep the group of five well-fed for over a year. But this huge stash of food was left undisturbed and unopened. Also, there was a butane tank outside which could provide comfortable heat to the trailer and provide power, but this also was not turned on. How many of the group had stayed in the trailer is unknown, but it is believed that at least Gary Mathias had been there as his sneakers were found in the trailer. The sea ration cans had been opened with a P-38 can opener, which Gary would know how to use from his army days. Since it was believed someone had wrapped up Ted in the sheets, it seems possible that Gary did that as well. Whether it was just Gary and Ted in the trailer or any of the other men had also stayed for a short time was unknown. And that remains the last of the information known about this case. All that is known for sure is that for reasons unknown, the group drove up to the mountain, left the car for no reason, and began walking uphill in the snow-covered road until they found a trailer which was barely used and again was abandoned by the men. Well, somewhat abandoned. Somewhat abandoned, yeah. (laughs) One stayed behind, whether he wanted to or not. So for as crazy and mysterious as this case is, I guess we'll talk about some theories to this case, though there aren't many theories to go on, which helps. Because there's not a whole lot of information Ex- to go off. Exactly. <laughs> Everything is just like questionable here. Yeah. Every every stage of the mystery is just like, why? That's, you get little tidbits. Yeah. And but none of even, it makes sense. Even, yeah. Even that stuff, like you got the witness accounts that don't hold much to it. They yeah. could just be speculative or guesses. I mean, there's nothing. The, the only real evidence you have are the bodies now, even... Minus Gary. Right. 
and the car. Yes. That's it. Yeah. So when the law enforcement families, you know, try to come together to think of something that could help answer the disappearance, there's one possibility that the group went to Forbes Town in Butte County where a friend of Gary Mathias lived. The thinking is that on the way back from this visit, the group got lost and ended up on the mountain where their car would eventually be abandoned and then everything else would happen. However, Gary's friend in Forbes Town said that he hadn't seen the group that night and it had been a while since Gary had visited in the first place. Gary's stepfather said about this part that he does think that if the five men had been in the area, Gary likely would have wanted to stop by on his friend. But at the same time, he doubts that they had traveled to Forbes Town that night in the first place. What I don't get is when you know that you have ventured off track because you're going up a mountain. Yeah. Why not turn around then? Let's keep going up the mountain until we get stuck. Like, you know, when you drove there, you didn't drive over a mountain. Yes. So when you're trying to come back and you're going up a mountain, that should sit off. It's It's a red flag. It's a red flag. It's a major red flag. So beyond, this is really the only kind of theory I've kind of come across, <laughs> but again, it doesn't really hold much weight at all. You know, beyond this is ba- basically just grasping at straws. Then an article in the LA Times that was written shortly after the discovery of the bodies makes a pretty good summary of trying to unravel the mystery of this case. The article says, What gnaws most desperately is that none of the theories make sense. Well over 100 days after the disappearance, they continue to ask the same question that has dogged them from the beginning. Why? Why would five men who live their lives by habit, never indulging in whims, voluntarily drive into the mountain that night before the basketball tournament, which they had all looked forward to with anticipation, all without wearing warm clothing and carrying no food or supplies? Why would they park their car in a mountain road and struggle miles uphill in five to ten foot drifts of snow instead of taking the easier downhill route or waiting for help by the vehicle? Why would the men in the trailer make no attempt to use the warm clothing and heated materials only a few feet away? Understandably, the families of the men were left confused and in disbelief, as we all are. Yes. Jack's mother, Melba Madruga, said about the end of the case, things aren't right. They want to say they all got stuck, walked out like a bunch of idiots, and froze to death. To put it bluntly there. Yeah. Why would they leave the car to go to die? There's no sense to that theory, but we can't figure anything that works out right. There's no rhyme or reason to any of it. Melba herself believed that the fate of the group may have been caused by foul play. She said there was some force that made them go up there. They wouldn't have fled off in the wood like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody made them do it. We can't visualize someone getting the upper hand on those five men, but we know it must have been. Ted Weyer's sister also believes that they may have seen something or someone that scared them and caused them to drastically change their route home. Now, so this is a theory that really only relies on people who know the men, but... You know, as far as possibilities go, it does make sense. You would think that... That foul play makes sense? Well, I don't know about foul play, but there has to be someone else involved. I don't see how this whole thing came from the five boys. No. You know, whether someone forced them to go up or they were going to meet somebody, there has to be... Or some, helping someone. Or helping someone. You know, there has... I don't know if it's one person or a group, but... 
I don't know. There seems to be some outside influence. Exactly. For what their parents say, they they lived very habitual lives. Yes. They didn't do anything that drifted from their usual day-to-day things. And you would think that if it was something they had planned that they didn't tell in their families, it was something that they, in their minds, would thought wouldn't take long at all. Yeah. Because, again, they finished watching the game at 10 p.m., and they had to get up early the next morning for the basketball tournament, which they were all excited for. Right, and, you know, like, always talking about it. Yeah. Even, what's it, Gary's mother says that Gary was talking about it weeks and is all constantly reminding her, hey, make sure you got to wake me up. Yeah. You got to wake me up. I got to get to this tournament. Exactly. So you would think if they had to run an errand or went up this mountain for some reason, they would think it was just going to be up and down. You know, so they could still make it. They would get home on time. Yeah, or... it wouldn't be too much from their estimated time of coming back home. Exactly. So I think the the visit to a friend and then getting lost on the way. Again, as you said, there's a difference between making the wrong turn and driving up a mountain, you know, a good distance <laughs> before realizing this ain't right. Uh, I don't remember this, but yeah. we're going to keep going. The backseat driver's like, I think we're lost. <laughs> Jack's like, I got this. <laughs> It's a detour. Yeah. I've done this before. It's a shortcut. Um, so there's a few discussion questions, I think, that are the most important questions in this case. So one of them is, why would the group not stay in the cabin and use its food and supplies? So the cabin had you know, heating elements. It had a fireplace. There was firewood. There was matches. There were books that had to be burned in emergency. It had a year's worth of food. It had a butane tank, which would provide heat and electricity, none of which was used. Was it uh, stated how close this trailer was? I can't remember how close the trailer was to the car when it was found. I think it was like, I must say like 10 miles, maybe 18 miles or something. There was, it was a pretty good truck. So, you, I mean, you would eventually find it. But the question, you know, you asked that is how long into their excursion out there in the unknown did they stumble upon this cabin right. or trailer? Maybe not all of them were alive at the time. That's true. Yeah. So that's another question that right. comes up. But there is at least evidence that, that... Maybe two. Yeah, Gary, maybe another one, was there and then left. Yes. Without... we. The only person that we know for sure was there was Ted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Teddy, was, Teddy stayed there. Um, <laughs> Teddy made it home. Yeah. And again, you have to ask what condition Ted was in when he got there. Yeah. Because, I mean, he, obviously he was he was pretty messed up. But, but the autopsy says that he was probably alive when he was wrapped up. Yes. But he had been starving for a good amount of time. Well, he had no energy, so... But somebody had to be there to wrap him up. Yeah. So that also shows that at least two people were in the cabinet at some point. And if someone had enough energy to wrap Ted up, you think they why to, not start a fire? Yeah, or, or get some food. Like, and, yeah. and, and they found the food. You know, yeah. they they opened up you know a dozen cans. Yeah, and ignored you know the, the other five hundred cans there. Right. You think they would? You know, if they discovered the shed, they would look around and they would find you know the butane tank. It, even if you didn't find the tank, you would, you still have fire. Exactly. Yeah. You have. And Gary was. They know. Well, they almost definitely know that Gary. Could start a fire. Was in that cabin because he used his army can opener. And if anyone knew how to make a fire... Well, be... he didn't use his army can right, opener. But he... He, there was a can opener that the army would be 
efficient in using. Right. And Gary would know how to use it due That's to true. his experience. Yeah. So yeah. So apparently the civilians aren't very <laughs> aren't very good with P thirty eight. Yeah. I'm gonna look at this. I'm like, well, oh well. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a P thirty eight. Like, I don't know how to use this thing. <laughs> um, so so that wouldn't make sense. So another question is basically all about Joseph Scon's witness account, whether it was true and if it is true there's some weird things going on with the group yeah so if it was true there's definitely something fishy about it yeah so if the boys were there you know why would they not respond to joseph scones asking for help because even the parents said that at least for a couple of them if there was someone in need they would go and help this person yeah and especially like the only thing I think of is they might have been scared by this if they you know drive up. Yeah, they're already lo- like all the way in the intro. Yeah, where they they might be in that stressful situation and their judgment is deteriorating and they're not knowing what's going on. So yeah, they might be a little scatterbrained. Yeah, and then a someone, little nervous, scared. Pops out of the car, starts screaming for help, and they might be like, "I don't know about this." Right. So that's just that's just back up some. Again, like his, he has several different variations of his accounts. Uh, one time, he says that he th- saw a woman with a baby with the group. Yeah, in a truck. In a truck. I forget the truck. Yeah, so the truck. Yeah, the truck's a, a separate <laughs> thing. So, again, whether the woman was actually a woman or maybe just one of the guys, because one hallucination. Of, he said he was hallucinating. Yeah. It could have been a hallucination. One of I don't know if it was Madruga. One of the guys was pretty short, maybe like five six or five five. So he may have mistaken the person as yeah. a woman. Um one of the group had I think shoulder length hair, so again that might have, have played onto it. I don't know about the baby part unless he was like holding the carton of milk maybe or something. <laughs> um I don't know about that. But again, yeah, through his pain he might have been you know, one, not seeing clearly to begin with, and then two, when he's trying to remember this later on, his memory is warping it even further. Yeah. Um, and then there's another version where he said later on, he heard, like, whistling noises in the woods, and he saw, like, beams of flashlights, and, like, uh, were kind of going through the woods. And again, he yelled for help, and the people stopped, and they turned, like, the flashlights just turned off, right. and they seemed to vanish. That one I see as being... That had to be a hallucination. About yeah. like who's gonna be wandering in the woods with flashlights? Yeah, at night in the snow. And we we've established that these the five were uh, equipped not to do any kind of hiking or camping exactly. or anything like that. So they're not gonna be carrying multiple flashlights. Right. Yeah. So in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking that one's definitely a hallucination. Yeah, I would agree with that. It, especially, it would just seem odd if it is the five. If for some reason it was them and they backed off, they were scared, why come back through the woods, this time with flashlights to the same spot, and again run away when the person... So, yeah, I would think that, again, it's hard to say any of Joseph's story is legit, but, yeah, the, the, the flashlights in the woods, the woman with the baby... I would say are probably hallucinations. The pickup truck is still iffy. Yeah, because the pickup truck made its appearance again in another person's story. Right, but again, the five guys. Again, now there's a question of whether could it be a coincidence that another group of guys in the pickup truck ha- right. happened to come up the, you know, the mountain that night, and then the market store the next day. I can't remember where it Stranger was. Stranger things have happened. Yeah, another <laughs> pickup truck with yeah. five guys show up. <laughs> 
and again, this is weeks later. They're trying to just call up on memory from a few pictures. So yeah, but kudos on Joseph though for the the next day walking eight miles yeah. to go get help for his heart attack. Yeah, he's a tough man. <laughs> When discussing the behavior and actions of the boys, um, a big question is how much did the group's mental handicapped condition play into this? So I've seen a lot of opinions online of people chalking most of the reasons behind their deaths and disappearance up to them just being mentally challenged or handicapped. You know, while some were considered mildly mentally retarded with the term they used at the time, you know, Gary Mathias had schizophrenia which was supposedly under control at the time and he was taking medication right, but that time period he's not on his meds i don't think he carries his meds with him right but i mean the the day of the disappearance right, he was right. well so, under control yeah. so you wouldn't think that he'd be he flying. would go off the the keels so quickly exactly yeah and then you know jack madruga was known as mostly capable he was just a little slow you know both those guys were army veterans I've heard that one of the pers- one of the guys had like dyslexia and that's why he was categorized as mentally challenged, which doesn't really affect, you know, his ability to think and certainly wouldn't affect his like physical capability. Right. In theory, you would think they should at least know the basics of what to do so sur- to survive. First off, you're going off the mountain. If we don't know why they went up there. <laughs> But so we'll just throw that out the window. They're, they're, they're going the scenic route. They're going the scenic route. The car gets stuck. But again, it's not really stuck. They could have easily pushed yeah, it out. That's what you said that one, two, let alone five of them. Yeah. Five grown men. Yeah. And uh what was it like a foot of snow? I mean, a foot of snow is still quite a bit. Right. But with five of them. Yeah. Exactly. And again, if Joseph can walk eight miles down the mountain <laughs> while suffering a heart attack, while suffering a heart attack. You think that the five, they'll be like, you know, let's go down. And, and so the other thing is why did they decide to go up the mountain and sit so down? back down where they, where they came from? Exactly. So there is one other theory that there is a uh, snow cat that had been plowing some snow. Um, I don't know if it was like the day before or something so that there were some annotations still of the tracks leading up the road uh, up the mountain so some people think that their car got stuck they see these tracks from the snow cat going up the mountain and think that if they follow that it'll take them to some type of shelter yeah shelter or trailer or campsite or something so that's the reason why they decided to venture further up the mountain instead of simply turning and walking back down well, i mean that still that goes i, th- I think most of us would go back where we came from because we at least know what that territory is yeah we've been there we've just driven by it we know where where we came from we don't know what's ahead of us exactly and you know eight miles driving in the car i don't know how fast they're going but it was probably you know they just passed you know the last couple shelters and lodges you know 10 or 15 minutes and then they get stuck yeah so you think like there's just we know something is down there right we don't know what's up there and then a few of these guys, as we said before, they don't like being outside. They don't like hiking. They don't like fishing. They don't like the cold. They just don't like the outdoors. Yeah. So you don't think you think they want to get out as quickly as possible. Yeah. And then there's the whole issue with, again, people saying like, why didn't they take advantage of the cabin's resources? 
I've, again, seen some people chalk it up to their mental handicapped. But, again, you have Jack and Gary who served in the Army. But you got to also, you would think your primitive, you know, brain would take over. It's survival. Yeah. Then. It's, you're not, it's not critical thinking. Yeah. It's, it's, hey, here's this, this, this. I needed this, this, this to survive. I need to do this, this, and this. Yeah, it's snowing outside. We're freezing. We're hungry. Here's a trailer. You know, I've seen a few people saying like they were afraid of, maybe they've been afraid of breaking in and they didn't want to steal something. But again... But then they did it. Right, but you think <laughs> a person who is freezing isn't going to worry about, this is not my problem. Survive first, suffer the consequences later. Exactly. And that, as you said, eventually they did smash the window. Ted, most likely Gary, perhaps one other, was in the, the cabin also. Again, it, it's hard because there is kind of limited information on how much of an effect these people's mental handicap played into their ability to survive in this kind of situation. Right. But it's like everything they did is the opposite of, of what, what a person would do. Yeah. And you think if there's one or two, like maybe one person making a dumb mistake or a call, but there's five of them. <laughs> so you think that even if they split and went opposite directions, if they disagreed, but it's like they all kind of moved as one. Could it be the blind leading the blind then? Could it be like maybe Gary was calling the, like the, here's my theory or kind of guess maybe gary was calling the shots and he was making the wrong calls but because of his experience in the military and everything his fellow boys were just following his lead right they thought that he knew what he was right i could see that yeah especially if the others didn't like hiking and they get out like oh let's walk back and if yeah perhaps gary um was like here's some tracks they're gonna lead to a cabin let's go follow me and then everyone just follows suit and then it starts getting freezing cold. Maybe they get lost along the trailer or something. One or two drop dead. Yeah. And then by the time they find the trailer, maybe it's too late. That's that's a that's a pretty good theory. I like that too. I still think that there was at least one other person involved. Whether they were actually at the mountain or if there was somebody who they were met them along the way and then that person drove them up the mountain yeah something like that. or if they were said hey meet me here or something and again they thought it was just gonna be a quick visit but then their car got stuck in the snow and then everything was just kind of falling over like dominoes and it just got worse and worse and worse right so i I definitely think i don't know if it was foul play like if someone's forcing these guys at gunpoint you know again it's kind of hard to control five grown men if you're if it's just one person with a gun or something because then you would think that they would have to go along the same route also. Yeah. But I do think that at least one person influenced their decision to go up the mountain. And it wasn't just their, you know, whim to just <laughs> yeah. drive up there that night. No, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. So one thing that interested me when I first started looking to this case is how much it kind of reminds me of the Dyatlov past incident where you have, we covered in an earlier episode, where you have a group of Russian hikers who seemingly abandon their tent in the middle of the night, and they all go running their separate ways, and they all end up dying in different various methods. Um, but again, the big question is, why did they do the things that they did? Why did they leave their, their tents behind, their shelter behind, and just run off into the night? It's kind of similar in this one, where, you know, why did they abandon their car in the middle of the night? Why did 
they abandoned the trailer? Why did they not take advantage of the supplies of the trailer? And, you know, there's a couple elements of, like, something traumatic must have happened, but we just have no idea what it is. Right. No, I could definitely see that. Um, it just doesn't add up to our rationale, our thinking mm-hmm. of what we would do during these times. Something had to happen to alter their state of mind to cause them to do the actions they did. Yeah. Whether it be in this instance or the one that you're bringing up from the past and from a previous episode, it something, some outside influence had to alter yeah. their, their path or the way, the way of thinking. Yeah. And I think that's a crucial puzzle piece. And without that, none of this makes sense. Right. And that's why. Yeah. It's... If we knew that, I think the puzzle forms itself yeah. and it's complete, right. but without that missing piece, none of this makes sense. It's just, you just got to put all the pieces back in the, the box and yeah, shake it all up. <laughs> Maybe it'll show up down the road. Yeah. So I think Melba Madruga, Jack's mother sums up this case with saying things aren't right. So <laughs> nothing make, nothing makes sense. Short and to the point. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> things def- ain't right. definitely a very fascinating story. A mystery you know decades in the making uh we still don't have any idea we likely won't ever have any idea of, but it's a mystery that will probably continually confuse and fascinate people for decades more and with that we'll wrap up this episode of the strange matters podcast we hope everyone enjoyed and again we'd like to say welcome back from our hiatus if you have any feedback on this episode or if you have your own answers to some of the questions we brought up about the Yuba City missing men, let us know. You can email us at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com or you can get in touch with us. Send us a message on one of our social media accounts. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, if you have any suggestions for future episodes or topics you'd like for us to cover, again, just write us an email or send us a message. So until the next episode of this Strange Matters podcast, take care, everybody. Take it easy.